This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Well, good morning, everyone. Our Old Testament Bible reading today is from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there the thrones for judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also be. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. For the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do take a seat. It's great to be back with you after some weeks away. We're very refreshed, had a good time. Um, Well, but we return from our time away, from our holiday, to the troubles of the world. And given the troubles that the world has been experiencing in the last year or so, given the turmoil that surrounds us, and Indeed, maybe surrounding you personally, may, there may be personal turmoils that you are experiencing. We may be forgiven for asking, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Why is Jesus so conspicuous by his absence? Has he abandoned us? As those who follow him, might we have reasonably expected a bit more? I really sympathise with Lazarus's sister Mary who we hear in John 11 uh, was uh, when Jesus turned up to the great, his graveside, uh, Lazarus's graveside, she said to him, Sir, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Have you not felt like saying, Jesus, if you were here, this would not happen. This mess would not be unfolding. You can only imagine how things might be different were he here. It sometimes feels as if just when we've cried out to Jesus for help, which is the thing the Bible enjoins us to do, that we've discovered that we've got to sort everything out on our own. 
It feels perhaps that he's let us down and that we are lost, abandoned. Is that what Jesus is like? Disturbingly and disappointingly absent to the point we might begin, where we might begin to think that he will never show up even though we say his name, we sing his praises, we hear his words, we speak of him to one another? Well, that's the question that's troubling Jesus' disciples in the famous chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks from John chapter 14 through to 17. Just a few chapters from John's Gospel. You might like to give them a read at home. It'll only take you, I reckon, about half an hour to read John chapter 14 through to 17. We'll be looking at these words. And just to set the scene, it's the night before Jesus will be arrested by the authorities, tried and crucified. And so his disciples gather with him for one last meal. And Jesus there begins to teach them about what it will be like when he is gone. Only, they're only just working it out that he's going to be gone. It's the dawning realisation for them that he's not going to be there. This is like his last will and testament to them. How will they carry on now that he's no longer with them? And their reaction, as we can see from what Jesus says, is that they are deeply disturbed by the thought that he will leave them. They're shocked to the point of panic their hearts have started to pound in their chest. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, a realisation that something you thought was certain no longer is. Now, on this last holiday, uh, I was invited by a friend of mine, who's another minister, uh, down to Borley Point. We were at Mollymook on the south coast, and he said, let's go kayaking, which sounds peaceful and wonderful, doesn't it, going out into the peaceful, calm ocean on a kayak, a lovely way to spend an afternoon. So he puts me in his kayak and we go out through the waves about three, four hundred metres offshore. And then I capsized because I have no experience and I'm utterly hopeless. And I, I, I felt myself going into panic. I could hear the sound of my breathing. You know that sound? <gasps> I, I couldn't stop myself from doing that. And I couldn't get back into the boat. I knew that if my friend hadn't come and calmly guided me, reassured me what to do, how to get back into the boat, I would have drowned out there. I thought I was going to die. I thought this was the end. Is this the end of the Jesus movement? Is the ground dissolving beneath their feet? If he's going to go and get killed, then what does that mean for his disciples? Are they going to get killed too? And they look around the table and they don't see much by way of a replacement for Jesus. The authorities are circling like sharks around a surfer. And then Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. That's Judas. And another one, the designated leader, Peter, is going to deny him three times. The captain is going to die. And two of the leading players are definitely out of form. So when Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14 in our text, you can see that on our order of service, do not let your hearts be troubled. We can see why their hearts indeed would be troubled. And what has he got to say to them to explain his coming absence? How are they going to go on? How is he going to reassure them? Well, his words are full of reassurance and hope but also instructions for what to do. 
That's why I really wanted to turn to Jesus' teaching in these pages of John's Gospel, so that we at St. Mark's can tune in with these first disciples at that meal so long ago, sit at table with Jesus and his disciples and tune in to Jesus' words and receive both his reassurance and his instructions. His reassurance for our own troubles and his instructions for how we are to live. So in these verses, Jesus has got one thing for us to do and two reasons for us to do it. Here's what he wants us to do. Have a look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What are we to do? Don't stand on your own two feet. You can't get back in the boat without help. You need to trust in God, the Father, and to trust in Jesus. Now, it's important to realize he doesn't just mean believe here in the sense that we often mean it when we say, oh, do you believe in God or not? We, we use that to mean, does something, do I believe someone or something exists or not? Do you believe in God? It's like believing, you know, do I do believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or do I believe in aliens or whatever it might be? Do I believe in that sense? Now, that question's a very important question, the question of God's existence. Does he exist? And you might have doubts about his existence. That might be where you are at the moment, or you might not yet be convinced that he exists. And sometimes Christians haven't been very helpful here because we say, ah, oh, you just got to believe, some of us, even when you have doubts. I was reading during the holidays ABC TV's Lee Sales' book on doubt, quite small book, interesting book, and she says in that book, look, I used to go to church when I was a young person, as a young woman, I was invited along to church, but I stopped going because I had doubts about God's existence, and when I took them to the leaders of the church, the church leaders just said, oh, you've just got to believe. There's no reason, you just have to believe. And she said, this seemed pathetic, and so she gave up on Christianity. Now, if the question of the existence of God is one that you're puzzling away at, let me say that you don't have to just believe without reasons or evidence. The case for believing in God is very strong. People sometimes say, oh, there's no proof for the existence of God. Well, they're not, it's not true. There's heaps of proof for the existence of God. And if I'd love to talk to you about that, if that's something you'd like, you'd be interested in. Or you can pick up Dr. Timothy Keller's amazing book, The Reason for God, if you'd like to pursue that. But that's not quite what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying whether you believe in God, as in believe that he exists and believe in me too. He's saying, put your trust in God. Don't put your trust in something else, even if that's yourself. Don't put your trust elsewhere. Put your trust in God. Believe in the God who promises to be with his people. And for the Jewish disciples, this was familiar stuff. This is what they had been taught from childhood. God makes promises. And he's true to them. The right way to respond to him is to believe what he says he will do. Because he never fails. He never backs down from his promises. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He will fulfill his promises to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to all of the prophets. 
But here's the new and striking thing. Something Jesus is going to return to again and again over the coming chapters of John's Gospel, of this speech that we're about to look at. He's going to say, believe in God, but also believe in me. Believe in me too. You believe in what God has promised. That God in whom you believe, the God of Israel, the God of old, the God who made the heavens and the earth, speaks through me too. So trust me. Believe in me. I speak, says Jesus, with God's trustworthy voice. So trust me and do what I say. And why should we believe in Jesus? Isn't he just about to abandon his disciples and leave them to the the ravages of the authorities? Isn't he about to dump them in the mess? Isn't his mission about to end in a humiliating failure as he's taken from them and put to death? There are two reasons that Jesus gives to reassure his disciples that they can trust in him. He's leaving them, but he's not abandoning them. And this is the first reason. It's in verse 2 and 3. He says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if this was not true, I wouldn't have told you. I wouldn't have told you that there is in my father's house plenty of space. You might remember this famous verse, by the way, from the old version of the Bible, which used to say, in my father's house, there are many mansions. There's a kind of quirky translation for the word, uh, which, which was a bit confusing. It just means there's lots of space in God's house. Jesus is going to be taken from them, but he's going for a reason to prepare a place for them in his father's house, a place where they will belong. Now, it might sound to us as if Jesus is like some heavenly hotel manager going ahead of us to kind of prepare our rooms, open the curtains, uh, turn down the, the, the bedspread and put little chocolates on our pillows. What is this house? And what does Jesus do to prepare a place for us? We need to think less about architecture and more about relationship. The Father's house is the place where God is with his people. It's his heavenly residence, where he is. Those that live there enjoy his welcome and his hospitality. They eat and drink with God. They enjoy his life-giving, holy presence. They are together. They belong. And, says Jesus, there's lots of room there. Now, what does he tell us this? Well, he wants to tell us about the capacious heart of God, about the welcome mat that God has laid down. There's not some ticket system for heaven where the space might run out and he might be excluded because of a booking error. This has been the hard thing about running church during a pandemic. We have to limit the numbers of people who come to worship the God whose house has limitless space. There was no room at the end for Jesus when he was born. But there's plenty of room in God's accommodation for anyone who wants to come. There's space for you. But what does Jesus do to prepare a place for us? Although there's plenty of room in God's house and a wide open invitation, as sinners, 
You and I are ineligible to live there. We cannot come just as we are. Our path is blocked. But Jesus goes from his disciples to where? To the cross, to die. To die there for our sins. And having made atonement for our sins, having cleansed us of everything that stands against us, he does not remain dead. He's the resurrection and the life. And he goes from there to the Heavenly Father to prepare our place. Our place is prepared because you and I are prepared. Because Jesus prepares us by dying for our sins, by paying for our sins, so that we know that we are forgiven and that we are made holy. We have in Jesus now a place in the heavenly home with his Father. We belong there if we believe in him. Jesus tells them why he is going and then he reassures them that his absence won't be permanent. He will return to bring them home. That's the second reason that they should trust them. The first one being that he's going to prepare a place for them. The second being that he's going to return to bring them home. His absence is not an abandonment of them. It's not an unexplained absence. Remember those unexplained absences you get on your school report? It's when your mum forgot to send you, you know, write you a note or you forgot to get it from... No, in this situation, Jesus' absence is very much explained and it's only temporary. He's going away for the very reason that he's making our home with God secure and sure. And he promises to return to gather up his people. He says, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. This is what is sometimes known as the second coming. Jesus will come again. And it's a great spoiler. Though we're living in the middle of things, we know the end of the story. Though we might be bewildered about and confused and sad right now, we know how the story is going to turn out because we know that Jesus promises to return to bring us home, to be with us so that we will be where he is. We have his promise and his promise is sure. And that will be a great reunion when Jesus returns. Now, reunions can sometimes be awkward, can't they? I don't know if you go to your school reunion, but I, I love going to my school reunion, but they are a bit awkward. They're a bit weird, aren't they? I mean, um, for blokes, it's always interesting to see who's bald, uh, who's got facial hair, uh, that sort of thing. Um, but, but there's that sort of awkward conversation you have with people. What are you doing now? Uh, and you feel like you're going to be, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like it used to always. It's a little bit nervous, that sort of reunion. But this reunion is a reunion of being comfortable, of being at home and at peace, of being at rest. We will know at this reunion the reality of healing and peace and new life with Jesus. And so we should long for that day. You know, after a time apart from family or friends, reunions like that are very precious, aren't they? Perhaps more than ever before, we've experienced separation from our loved ones because of the pandemic. We've known the ache of absence and long for the preciousness of presence when you're finally able to see that person face to face and to hold them 
and to hear their voice. You just can't hug someone over a computer, can you? And these experiences of absence from family and friends should remind us as disciples of Jesus of our longing to be with him and what a great day his return will be. Today, Jesus is not physically present with us. But like his first disciples, he called us not to be troubled, but to believe in him. Not to spend our time fretting. We're very good at fretting, aren't we? You know, worrying is for some of us a bit of a hobby. I know it is for me. It's very hard not to fret to have a troubled heart. You just have to switch on the media, look at what you're missing out on when it comes to being advertised to. Our world is a very troublesome world, a a world designed to make us fretful. But like his first disciples, Jesus is calling us not to be troubled, but instead to believe in him. He's gone to prepare a place for us in God's generous heart and will return to bring us home. So what are we to do? Well, we could obsess about other things, as I've said, but one way to respond to his absence might just to be forget about him altogether. We might start to believe that his absence is permanent and that we'll just have to cope. We might start to feel all too comfortable and assured here at home, right where we are. But to believe in God and to believe also in Jesus is to keep our expectations sharp for his return to keep whetting our appetites for him coming back. He has gone to prepare our place. He will return to take us to our true home. So how can we keep our appetites sharp? How can we practice this waiting for him? Well, we should not let our hearts be so troubled, but rather fill them with hope. Rather practice waiting. Practice believing in him. Practice living in, under his authority, living by listening to his words. Practice our trust in Jesus and go deeper and deeper with him. If you trust in God and in Jesus, you can find a great antidote to anxiety. In the midst of the turbulence of our time, and in the midst of all the turbulence that you and I individually experience, the turbulence you may be experiencing this morning, we have in Jesus something solid to put our feet on. We place our trust in someone utterly reliable, someone who has our good at heart, someone who has given his life for us, someone who, though he has given his life for us, still lives. His absence is only for a time, and so our troubles and our woes and our worries will pass, and we soon will be united with him in great joy. As Paul the Apostle puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the midst of his own deep distress and discouragement, he says, We do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, he knew about the suffering of the body and old age and the aches and pains, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction... That's a way to think about this world's troubles, isn't it? A slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, something far more solid, beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. 
For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. I found this an eminently practical teaching for everyday life. As we set our feet on the floor each day and begin to face whatever it holds, we should turn to Jesus and say, What have you got in store for me? What would you have me do this day as I wait for your return? What do you command me to do? I belong to him. What does that look like today in my family, in my work, in my leisure, in my study? Our troubled hearts distract us from listening to him, the one in whom we belong, the one in whom we can trust. But once we've stilled them, we are ready, we'll be ready to hear what he would have us do so we might hope in him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.